You're listening to Lies and Half-Truths, tales written and performed by A.P. Weber. This is A.P. Weber. It's good to have you with me. On this episode, The Seed of the Fay Tree, Chapter 8. This is the final chapter of this story, so if you haven't yet, you may want to listen to chapters 1 through 7. By the end of last episode, all hope is lost for Ven now that Fern's Cyrinx is destroyed. He is alone, facing a pair of battling monsters blocking his escape. And where is Darl? Find out on the exciting conclusion of The Seed of the Fay Tree. Before we get started, I'd like to encourage you to go to apweber.com where you'll find more of this kind of storytelling. That's A-P-W-E-B-E-R.com. And now, Lies and Half-Truths presents The Seed of the Fay Tree, Chapter 8. of trampled growth on the forest slope. Dissonant woodwinds hummed in the air nearby. Down the slope, a tumult threatened to drown out the pipe song with its terrible noise. He blinked and sat up. His sword was within arm's reach and his treasure chest looked intact, lying a bit farther down the incline. A quick examination of his person revealed fresh, green scrapes all over, but everything seemed to be bending in the right directions, if a bit sorely. Something big was happening down by the shore. He could imagine what, given that the monster which had lately thrown him had charged in that direction. But the song of his masked foe sounded close. Which of these, he wondered, was the more pressing concern? He made a quick decision and set out. The water out in the inlet writhed and thrashed before Ven. He wondered if he should run, if this would be his last opportunity for escape. If Kruja were to survive, he would certainly hunt Ven down after the humiliation of the proud beast's subjugation. If the Leviathan survived, it would likely continue blocking the way home. Or would it? This battle challenged Ven's assumptions about the Leviathan, like that it was unwilling or unable to approach the shore. Clearly, It easily navigated the shallow waters. Did it truly harbor malicious intentions for the brothers? All this time, it could have attacked, but it didn't. It merely watched them. It could have destroyed their boat, leaving them stranded. But even in the bedlam of the current battle, it hadn't so much as nudged the craft by accident. Had the Leviathan been following their travels merely to watch them, or perhaps even to watch over them, Ven looked at the pile of broken and brittle reeds. He knelt down and began collecting the fingers. If he could cobble together another syrinx out of what was left undamaged, maybe he'd be able to ward off Kruja. If he was fast enough, maybe he could even give the Leviathan an edge over its enemy. 
A fresh roar of white water burst from the lake, so close Ven could feel the spray. He jolted up and turned to see Kruja, hunched and panting, still waist-deep in the water. The great beast bled from gashes in his flanks, and fissures had formed on his bony face, seeping crimson. When his dark eyes settled on Ven, Kruja emitted a low, accusatory growl just as a discordant melody began to play from somewhere off in the trees. Ven let the twig fingers fall once more from his hands, now drained of strength and any sort of hope for survival. It seemed a cruel way to die, alone, not even his brother with him, but a fitting way to die in light of his recent behavior. He thought of Lizzie in that moment, how he had hurt her by siding with the common folk who persecuted them. That this fact would forever tarnish her memory of him, and he would never have the chance to make it up to her, felt like his greatest failure. It represented all the ways he'd been failing his people lately. Before his death, he thought he should admit some hard truths to himself. As long as his band remained Hafkin, Redway would come for them, and they would have no sanctuary from his wrath. So he had sought to transform his people into something more palatable to the common-blooded folk who might then shelter them. This, he now realized, was an impossible task, much like winning Lizzie's love was impossible. Perhaps the quest on behalf of the goddess was merely an effort to place his devotion to Lizzie, to his family, to the Hafkin band, elsewhere, somewhere it might be received, somewhere he could actually realize a change. Reuniting a goddess with her wayward worshippers turned out to be more feasible than saving his band. He would die out here in the Valley of the Gods, and then his Hafkin fellows would perish at the hands of their enemies. At least, without his interference, they would remain truly Hafkin. Their traditions and lore would carry on right up until the end. This inward confession provided him one final moment of solace, and he was grateful to Lizzie for sparking it. Kruja's body coiled for his attack as the terrible song built in awful intensity, but just at the moment of the music's release, the water behind the beast exploded in a phalanx of jagged teeth. The leviathan's jaw, though covered in dreadful lacerations, clamped once more onto Kruja's hide, burying its teeth deep. Kruja roared defiantly, even as his body sagged into weakness. Ven just looked on, slack-jawed at this. The Leviathan truly had been protecting him. Unbidden, he found himself leaping into the air with a cry of victory. The woodwind song faltered and then took up once more, fruitlessly. Ven fell into a fit of giddy laughter. He screamed curses into the darkening woods. You degenerate goblin layabout! Now what are you going to do, you bastard? Nothing! As he taunted the masked one, a shadow blotted the already purpling sky. In horror, Ven watched as two great talons carried by a mass of feathers swooped down from the heavens. The talons grasped the leviathan at its throat. Kruja slumped to the wet earth as a burst of wind blasted Ven to the ground. The flying creature beat its wings, still holding the limp leviathan, and soared off southward into the gathering dark. Ven clambered to his feet, 
casting furtive looks between the woods and the wet and bloodied mound of heaving fur that was an exhausted Kruja. His bow lay broken somewhere back where he had fallen, so he grasped the hilt of his short sword and charged toward the mass of trees from where he had heard the pipe song. Before he reached the woods, that wicked melody resumed. Howling, Kruja lifted his snarling head. Slowly, the beast rose up on his front paws, eyes locked on Ven. Ven sprinted at the trees. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw Kruja. Heavily, the monster lifted his flanks. At the edge of the gloomy woods, the music stopped in the midst of a melody. Kruja stood now ready to charge, but hesitating. Ven felt something roll against his feet. He looked down. The wooden mask lay on the ground before him, still wearing the head it had rolled in on. Got him, came Darl's voice from the shadows. He emerged into the twilight, red-stained greatsword on his shoulder. He held out the syrinx. Here, he said wearily. I gotta go back and get my treasure. Ven took the instrument. Seeing it up close, he realized that it was not made of reeds at all. Clearly, he could see the knuckle joints of Fern's slender fingers, the ones she had grown long ago and had been pruned by her worshippers back when they still served her. Behind him, Kruja was panting, agitated breaths, half growls. Ven looked the creature in the eyes as he played a soft and gentle melody. Rest, he was telling him. It is time to sleep. Krucha's eyes sagged as he sat back on his haunches. He laid down with the lake lapping at his flank and closed his eyes. In a moment, his shoulders were rising and falling in slow, rumbling swells. They sailed away under the light of the moon and stars, leaving Krucha where he lay. When they were a little more than half of the way back to Cascade Rock, Ven steered the vessel into one of the inlets. He found another small, pebbly beach, and they disembarked. This seems unlike you, Darl said, shouldering the chest of treasure. But I like it. Ven sighed and began digging with his sword. You're right, he said. I have been letting the band down. No, Darl consoled him. That wasn't fair of me. No one works harder for our people than you. That's the truth. I was wrong-headed. I can see that now. Sometimes what I want isn't what's best for the band. Not if it means giving up what it means to be a halfkin. So, what's the plan? I don't have one yet. But I will. Or Mom will. Or Gart. Or you. But in the meantime, we don't need to give Cascade Rock so much of our loot. Not when they just bank it and edge us out. We're bringing back some of it though, right? I have debts. Darl, we have a fortune in that chest. Even if we bring back a tenth of it, they'll be happy. And the rest of it will buy us some time, at the very least. Every now and then we can come out here, dig some up, and tell tales of our latest exploits. You don't want to go find the other temples? 
Ben sunk down against a tree trunk and offered Darl his sword. You dig for a minute. I'm just tired. This expedition was... It was a little too close. Too often. We're pressing our luck. Next time we go out in earnest, we need to be much better prepared. But for now, it's more important that we figure out how to solve our barren redway problem without getting too indebted to Cascade Rock. Darl shrugged. I don't know about that, but at least you're thinking like a halfkin again. That very night, two horsebacked travelers arrived at the closed and barred gates of Cascade Rock next to the rushing river. They paused momentarily, faces raised to the switchback road zigzagging up the mountainside. One of the riders sighed. I don't suppose they'd let me take my horse up with me, he said. They turned their steeds away from the river, one rider leading the other. They trotted up the worn path to the dark wagon circle that ringed in the cheerful golden lamplight glow of the Hafkin's little settlement. The leading rider said, The Hafkin may billet us. Good folk will certainly not turn away a cripple and a woman for the night, said the other, a subtle smile evident in his voice. The riders paused and listened, an idly plucked harp, the laughter of children, and clank of silverware against plates. Sounds of a content community filtered out over the barrel-top wagons into the night. Finally, the guide said, If we're polite, they may even give us some supper. Smells like Coney stew. All I can smell is that perfume of yours. After so long on the road, how you managed to avoid the stench that I seem to be unable to escape is quite mysterious. A woman never reveals her secrets, said the guide dryly, without a hint of flirtation. Hitch up here, Master Cario. I'm not well known to the Afghan, but I have rapport with their chief and her family. I hunted her son but my failure to catch him left us on good terms. Adresha, please, said Kirio. For the last time, do call me Zen. Kirio swung a leg over the saddle, gripped the horn, and slowly lowered himself down from his steed. He stumbled when he touched the ground, but recovered by grasping the saddle straps to the animal's whinnying chagrin. He chuckled sheepishly when he found Adresha watching his misstep. Drawing his cane from the saddlebags, he stood as straight as he could on crooked, bowed legs awaiting her lead. He was a slender man, dressed simply, but in fine clothes, tailored to his frame. His skin was pallid, almost sickly, but after so long on the road with him, Adresha had grown to regard his face as handsome. His eyes projected an expression of good-natured and interested probing toward whatever subject he beheld. For some time now, that subject had been Adresha alone. She almost felt hesitant to enter the Hafkin village and introduce someone new to the companionable dynamic they had developed. Alas, she liked so few people. As peculiar as many of those within the circle of wagons appeared, the travelers found the Hafkin about the commonplace business any folk would be as the day wound down. 
A little girl swept by, Kirio so close, he had to shuffle backward on unsteady feet. He smiled after her and saw several tails tossing about her rump as she ran. Her father scooped her up, proclaiming that she was the fastest little girl in the camp and warning her not to play so close to the fire. Around the fire in question, many folks sat on rough-cut log benches, some singing along with the harp, others gossiping and quaffing from mugs. Adresha watched Kirio, take in the scene with his characteristic keen interest, his eyes drifting slowly around, as if giving himself time to fully absorb each minute element. Adresha, said a tall, statuesque woman, I was not aware you had returned. Adresha nodded reverently, almost a bow. She knew this too, Kirio would observe and draw inference from. He did not disappoint. Kirio bowed as low as he could leaning heavily on his cane. Greetings, he said. I am Inquisitor Zenrizan Kirio, and you must be the venerated Chardel Boro. It is so nice to finally make your acquaintance. Char's characteristic stoic expression faltered ever so slightly as she regarded the man. She shot a questioning, no, accusatory, look at Adresha. Likewise, Master Kirio, Char said. Regaining her composure so quickly, Adresha almost questioned whether she had actually seen it falter. An unexpected pleasure, but a pleasure all the same. We come seeking hospitality for the night, Adresha said. Of course, said Char. She summoned some young halfkin and instructed them to set up cots for their guests and have stew brought to them at her wagon. Please she said, addressing Kirio. Join me for some tea, and perhaps you can favor me with the tale of how an imperial inquisition finds its way to so remote a locale as Cascade Rock. They sat at Char's fold-down table, cupping earthy-smelling tea and looking across at each other. Adresha kept stealing furtive glances at the band leader, but Char seemed intent on Kirio, studying him like a duelist watching her opponent. Kirio smiled, a gesture Adresha knew he intended to be interpreted as disarming. You know the expression, lie of omission, he said at last. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Is there really such a thing? It's a legal term. More than an expression, isn't it? Char said. Shouldn't one such as yourself be quite settled on that question? Kirio's laugh was genuine and self-effacing. Yes, I know, he went on, recovering. But it's a strange term. Certainly you needn't tell someone every little thing you know for fear of being called a liar. That would be absurd. But if you know something, some relevant bit of information... Here, he waved a hand, dismissively. Whatever that means in the situation, and you do not share it, one can't help but feel deceived. Is this an academic discussion, Master Kirio? Char said. Or does it relate to your business here in Cascade Rock? Both. I suppose. I started my career as an academic and find that these lofty and sometimes esoteric questions bear surprising relevance 
when it comes to my investigations. Take Adracia here. I hired her as my guide and protector, with the intention of deputizing her to assist me. We spent, oh, what was it? Nearly three months on the road together. Just the two of us. You get to know a person on a journey such as that. And by the end, you're reaching to find something, anything, new to discuss. So, why do you think it is that? And I am only now putting it all together. But never once, during our long journey, did Adracia think to mention that she is, in fact, a halfkin. Char blinked at the man, glanced at Adracia. A halfkin, she said. That's... She trailed off into ponderous silence. Adresha watched the table and ground her teeth. Kirio spoke softly now, a note of sorrow in his voice. You should have told me, he said. If you are innocent, you should have told me. I've come all this way to investigate a nobleman's disappearance. A halfkin, as you know, is suspected of his murder and others of aiding and abetting. Now it seems I must add my friend to that list of suspects. It saddens me. And so, with an admission of sorrow, began the investigation of the immortal emperor Perinius Zet's inquisitor, Zenrizan Kirio, into the murder of Lord Harath of Kelnreach. Much more grief and trouble would result from the noble Kirio's inquiry, for him, for the Halfkin, and for the people of Cascade Rock. But that must be a story for another time. Thanks for listening to Lies and Half-Truths. This episode was written and performed by A.P. Weber and produced by Meg Weber. Our theme was provided by Josiah Martins. Original music by Weep Bar. Music help from the incomparable Mackenzie Stubbard. Please consider liking, sharing, or reviewing this podcast wherever you listen to it. You'll find more stories like this one at apweber.com. In any case, please join us again next time for more Lies and Half-Truths. <laughs>